Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. Welcome to Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes. Here's what's coming up on the show today. It's been a tough week for Sakia Starmer. It's been found that he breached the MP's code of conduct eight times. And he's under growing pressure to make his stance clear on MPs appearing on picket lines. Is his position becoming untenable? Sales figures from the House of Commons show Boris Johnson's collectible Toby jug has far outsold Margaret Thatcher's and Winston's Churchill's. Just this show that he's still got that star power. And we'll be speaking to Sir John Redwood to get his take on several areas in the UK being subjected to a hosepipe ban and what he thinks could actually be done. That's what we're talking about for the next hour. As ever, your thoughts are much more important than my own. What do you make of Sir Keir Starmer? Do you think he's losing control of his party? Tweet me at GB News or email me on gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can watch us online on YouTube and don't forget Facebook. Loads of cracking content on our page. Cheers very much. Before all of that, though, I want to ask you, how often have you heard somebody making a case for border controls and managed migration, then being howled down as some kind of swivel-eyed bigot, a racist, a heartless swine, the list goes on. The British have repeatedly voted for robust border controls, the kind of checks and balances that apply to most nation states worldwide, whose borders aren't uh, leaky like a sieve like ours is. Time and again, we were told that we couldn't have border controls because we were a member of the EU. Well, we voted for Brexit. We voted to take back control and bring an end to this idea that Britain could handle unsustainable levels coming here. Unsustainable numbers at a time when we've got a cost of living crisis, a housing crisis, an NHS crisis, a school places crisis, a dentist crisis. The list goes on and on and on. We've also seen the continued security threat, that is the English Channel crisis. And according to figures from the Ministry of Defence, the number of people who have illegally crossed the Channel this year has passed 18,000. 1,709 people have been brought to the UK so far in August alone. We'll see a smashing of the number of arrivals recorded last year. And the argument goes, right, that these people are scrambling for the dinghies to escape war and persecution. And that they could be LGBT foreigners from nations where being gay could see you harassed or worse. So how could we possibly oppose their arrival? How could we, heartless hicks, oppose the arrival of those escaping the bullet and the bomb? That's the argument that lefty lawyers and politicians use to gang up against the voters in seeking to thwart the deportation of those who have made it illegally to our shores. Only that isn't reflected in the facts. Facts revealed to us thanks to a leaked document passed to the leader of Reform UK, Richard Tice, who'll be on this show later. This document indicates that 40% 
of those arriving on our shores are from Albania, not Afghanistan. Others come from stable regimes, including Turkey, Egypt, Vietnam and India. Now, Albania isn't exactly a land of milk and honey, but it's not some war-torn hellhole. This is primarily about economic migration. It's not about somebody facing life or death and seeking refuge in a safe country. As I've said before on this channel, if it genuinely was, these people have already passed through several safe countries by the time they get here. I don't know about you, but France is a pretty nice place to go on holiday at this time of year. They come here only to be placed in taxpayer-funded hotels, as everyday Britons struggle to keep the lights on. To me, that just isn't right. It doesn't sit well with me at all. And some people have reportedly left these hotels without our authorities registering their photographs or taking their fingerprints. So that's people that are coming here, coming and going as the please that we know next to nout about. Albanian criminal gangs are among the most prominent and notorious in Britain today. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out that some people may not be coming here because they want to abide by our laws and traditions. Some may even be in danger of modern-day slavery in Britain's dark underground economy. The government had seen these documents before Tice ever did, if I hazard a guess. We weren't told about the fact so. Why is that? Ask yourself that question. Why is it that the two leadership candidates in Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have barely said a thing about how they'd stop the invasion at our southern border? Why have other broadcasters not actually quizzed them on how they'll stop this issue? The government ought to be open and transparent with the public about who exactly is coming here and what steps they're going to take to finally end the cruel trade of people and this assault on our generosity and goodwill as a nation. Now, despite leading in most opinion polls, as I said at the top of the hour there, it's once again been a, a week to not to forget one, a week rather, with Sakia Starmer. He has had one hell of a tough ride, I think it's safe to say. The roller coaster never ends for Sakia. As well as showing a lack of consistency by not sacking his shadow level and up secretary Lisa Nandy, she appeared alongside strike and workers, which is something he did sack shadow minister Sam, Ta former shadow minister, I should say, Sam Tarry for. The Labour leader was also found to have breached the MP's code of conduct eight times. Not once, not twice, eight times by failing to register eight interests on time. So, joining me to discuss this is the former Labour spin doctor, Joe Phillips, and political editor of the Daily Express, David Maddox. Joe, can I start with you, please? Does Sakir Starmer need to clarify his stance? Because right now, many of my viewers are saying, well, Darren, it seems really inconsistent, the approach he's applying as far as his shadow cabinet's concerned and what his stance is on people who strike. Um... Darren, first of all, I must correct you. I'm not a former Labour spin doctor. I actually was Paddy Ashdown's press secretary, but I'm more than happy to talk about Keir Starmer. But it's just for I do apologise. Yes, absolutely. People in the Labour Party thinking I don't remember her. <laughs> um, I mean, you're right. 
Keir Starmer and the Labour Party should be absolutely zooming ahead in the polls at the moment. The Tories are put, uh, tearing themselves apart. It's a zombie government and he's not getting through. And things like the sacking of Sam Tarry, um, they are self-inflicted injuries, if you like, that create a problem where one didn't need to exist. He didn't sack Sam Tarry, the uh, former shadow transport minister, for going on a picket line. He sacked him for making up policy on the hoof by doing unauthorised interviews. Now, that is, you know, fairly standard behaviour within uh, a shadow cabinet, um, within a political party. Lisa Nandy, the shadow levering up secretary, did appear on a picket line, but she wasn't doing interviews that were not out of kilter with the party's policy. So I think that's important to get that clear. I think the problem with Keir Starmer is um, that he is, you know, he's now got an open goal, really. We've got a cost of living crisis. We know that is the single biggest issue facing most people. Um, he needs to come up with some really clear policies and some really um, detailed stuff about what Labour would do if they were in government. I fear he is being run by focus groups, and I think that means there's a lot of caution about saying something that might upset somebody. And as we all know in politics, you know, you can't please all of the people all of the time. Um, but it's a fool who tries to try tries to do that because you're just going to make people think you're weak and haven't got a policy. Yes, Joel Phillips, thank you very much there. David Maddox, I'm going to bring you in now. What's your instinct on how Sakia Starmer is actually going down with the public? Because Joel's right, surely, at this time of generation-defining inflation, people are really struggling right now. The Labour Party should be falling over each other, scrambling up the polls, shouldn't they? Well, I just compare it back to the 1990s, you know, when, when we had a collapsing Conservative government, you know, riddled with sleaze and all the rest of it. And Labour under Tony Blair had leads of 20 plus points in the polls. I mean, the, the hard truth of this is that uh, the reason the Conservatives are even still in the contest and have a more than fighting chance of winning the next election is because Keir Starmer is leader of the Labour Party and just doesn't inspire people. I mean, he's often described as dull. He is. And, uh, you know, I read a piece uh, last uh, a couple of weeks ago suggesting actually that maybe we've got the wrong leadership election because it's quite clear that Labour members and Labour MPs are unhappy with Starmer as leader. I mean, the Sam Terry incident was was pretty clear on that. And, uh, and and certainly the amount of support that Sam Terry had after his sacking was, was remarkable. Whereas, you know, with Boris Johnson, we've got a kind of revolution on our hands in the Conservative Party of members furious that he's been kicked out by MPs. So, you know, it's it, it's a really, a really tough one. And, and now we found out this week, of course, that Keir Starmer can't even run his own office, let alone a political party or the country. And uh, it's, it's just astonishing, actually. The, the coverage of that as well, I found quite extraordinary, because I don't know about you, David, but I can almost... I would put money on it, and I'm not a betting man, I tell you that. I would put money on it, that it, were it Boris Johnson that had been found to have breached these, these rules on accounting and all the rest of it, it would be headline news. You wouldn't hear the end of it. It would have been all weekend we were talking about that. Uh -huh. I well, think there's a huge also... difference, Darren. I'm sorry to butt in there, but That's you know, all right. Johnson is a 
is a serial liar and known to be a liar long before he came into politics. He was sacked from jobs as a journalist, as David ah. and I both know. I think no, there's a no, huge, huge difference. And many of these come things, on, I mean, the commission let, 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 said let, 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 uh, these were minor or inadvertent um, oh, contraventions man. of the code. And one of them was a declaration which was a day late. But David, no there were eight. There were yeah, eight. This is a man who forgot that he owned seven acres of land and didn't declare it. I mean, the fact is that, you know, the rule of law in this country, it's a basis of our democracy. The rule of law suggests that everything has to, applies equally to everybody. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, with this and with Beergate, you just look at it and you just think, uh, it's not being applied equally mm. at all, you know. And, uh, and Starmer is getting off much more lightly than, uh, than a Conservative MP, let alone Boris Johnson. I mean, if it be, you're absolutely right, Darren. If it had been Boris Johnson, would have been demands for judge-led inquiries and all the rest of it. You know, it's, it's just amazing. And the fact that this was not referred to the Standards Committee for eight breaches, I mean, this is not one breach, this is eight breaches, it was not referred to the Standards Committee, I think it's a scandal. And, and, and let's go back to Beergate. Beergate compared to Partygate, so Boris and Rishi were, were actually fined for something that they had been honest about, that they'd publicised that this uh, cake had happened before a meeting in a workplace, uh, whereas Labour Party lied, actually lied about the event in Durham, which was a much bigger event, pre-planned, and yet, you know, it's the former who get fined and not Starmer and Rayner and the rest of them. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. The whole thing is bizarre. I know that you disagree with, with that last point, but I wonder, do you agree with me? You mentioned your, your former job in, in advising or working with Paddy Ashdown. I'm wondering, you think, when you think back to that era of politician, right, the, the likes of Paddy Ashdown, very charismatic man, and you look at the crop of politicians that we've got now, you know, we're facing, it's either going to be Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss as leader of the Conservative Party, and you've got Robo Starmer as leader of Labour. Are we... What happened to, to politics and politicians to go well, from the likes I of Paddy Ashdown yeah, to I, this? I, I agree with you, Darren, and I don't think that's, you know, me being old and, you know, the rose-tinted spectacles. I think, um, you know, we are in an era now of professional politicians, and if you go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years, most people who came into politics had done something else beforehand. They hadn't just you know, worked for their local party, become a special advisor and then become an MP. Um, and certainly somebody like Paddy Ashton, you know, he had a, a, a career in the, the special boat service and had been unemployed and had done many, many things. And I think if you look at the calibre of people then, um, and I would include John Major in that. And I mean, Paddy always used to say that John Major was the most decent person that had ever been in Downing Street. And I think that probably still holds true today. It's difficult. Politics is hard graft it's brutal we you know we spend our lives the three of us here um dissecting people's every move every comment um it's it's brutal in terms of time and commitment and the effect it has on your family life um so i think the people who are being attracted to go into politics certainly at national level um they're having to make a bigger decision and be aware of the sacrifices that they have to make 
I mean, I genuinely believe that most people go into politics for the right reasons, because, you know, there are a lot easier ways to line your pocket or get famous. Um, so I do think politics is done with the best intentions. And I'm sure David would agree with me. And, you know, across the country, there are councillors, whether it's parish, county or local level, yeah. who are really working hard on behalf of local people. So I think we have to be, all of us, you know, we have to be mindful that we don't tar all politicians with the same brush because the worst thing that can happen is when we come to the next election people shrug their shoulders and say oh they're all the same i'm not going to bother yeah indeed because i tell you what you hear that time and time again david maddox in a word do you reckon sir keir starmer's gonna romp home at the next general election no actually i think he'll lose well there I we think, are uh, if it's really all this trust uh, either of them can beat him Joe, if, if you look into your crystal ball, what do you reckon? Um, if I was in the Conservative Party, I think I'd call a snap election if I was uh, one of the leadership campaign, because then you hand over the cost of living to the Labour Party and let them deal with it. Um, but I think that, you know, they will want to hang on to their own power, whichever okay. one wins. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but I thank you both very much for your contribution. That was the former... Labour, uh, Lib Dem even, advisor, Joe Phillips, and the political editor of The Express, David Maddox. Joining me in the studio is the political commentator, Reem Ibrahim. Reem, what do you make of, of Sir Keir Starmer's position here? Because it doesn't seem to know if he's coming or going, right? He should be massively ahead in the polls. The Tories are in a leadership election in which they're tearing chunks, knocking seven bells out of each other. Absolutely. Why I mean, is he First not? of all, thank you for having me on, Darren. Not at it's all. very lovely. And, yeah, I think it really shows that the sort of left-wing, uh, sort of socialist vision that Keir Starmer is attempting to push forward on the centre-right of the Labour Party just doesn't hit home with anybody. He needs to be able to win back those red wall seats that the Tories took from him in 2019. And I just don't think he'll get there. I think that he doesn't have any sort of principle or sort of vision that the party really, really need. I think that when you look over at the Conservative Party now, you've got Liz Truss, who's ahead in the polls, and she really is showing that actually those principles, that ideology, that sort of vision that, uh, that Britain actually genuinely needs, people absolutely love that. And do you think Sir Keir Starmer actually turning around to areas like Hartlepool, you know, and saying, I'm your man, you used to vote Labour, I'm the real deal, I'm the genuine article, do you think working-class communities like that are going to turn around and say, well, I didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, but actually, you're different, Sakia? I don't think that Keir Starmer really represents that sort of hard working class Labour vote. I think that he is sort of the champagne socialist figure that a lot of us um, sort of look up. And I think that he genuinely doesn't represent what people genuinely used to vote for when they voted Labour. I think that now the Conservatives have really shown that the individual, that uh, the free market, that business and driving forward the free market is really what people want and how people can do well in their lives. Well, we shall see. We shall see. Reem Ibrahim, though, will be coming back to you for some more in a minute or two. It's now 2.38 and a military intelligence report has revealed that four in ten channel migrants arriving in the United Kingdom are from Albania, a country that's been at peace for 25 years. Thus calling into question, folks, the argument that the UK should welcome all migrants because, of course, they're fleeing war and persecution and all of the rest of it. 
Well, the man who broke the story, Richard Tice, the leader of Reform UK, responded to the report by saying it's not up to the British taxpayer to support migrants who are not genuinely fleeing for their lives. I'm delighted to say that Richard Tice joins me in the studio now to discuss the findings in this report. Richard, well done, first of all. I'm Thank you. Good afternoon. Well, this was a really, really shocking report. And actually, this news has actually gone all over the world yeah. because it completely disproves everything that we've all been led to believe by the government, by well-intentioned do-gooders, charities, human rights lawyers, lawyers yeah. Amnesty International. They've all been saying, yeah, but they're all coming from war zones, from persecution. And now we've got the proof that the government's always had, but never told us. And the shocking thing, Dan, is that they know within days where everybody's come from. Mm -hmm. And yet we haven't been told. And here we are. I mean, Albania is, yes, it's a, it's a developing country, but it's a member of NATO. It's applied to join the EU. Its economy is fast growing. Its debt and inflation figures make ours look even more woeful than they already are. And you think, hang on, I mean, people are going from Britain to Albania on holiday. Yeah. And here's the thing, and this is the really big question to ask. So if you're an Albanian, you can get a cheap 180-day visa to come to the UK and fly here lawfully with that visa for a few hundred euros. You can work under the Seasonal Agricultural Worker Scheme for months and months and months here help the British economy and to win money. So if you can come here legally and work or visit, why would you pay a lot more money to come here illegally with the huge dangers of coming across the boats? You think, what's going on? And the question that I've got for everybody is, is it a coincidence that you've got... I mean, Albanian criminal gangs have taken over the cocaine and cannabis markets here. They represent the biggest percentage of foreign nationals in our prisons. Now, the vast, vast majority of Albanians are wonderful, delightful, hardworking people. But there is a, a really nasty, small minority who are very, very dangerous, really violent. And that's what troubles me. Are these people actually, are they foot soldiers, willing or unwilling or unknowing? of these criminal gangs? Are they being trapped in modern-day slavery, coming here thinking there's a great dream, mm. being sold a pub, and then they're trapped into criminal gangs? Because you look at the stats, Richard, and more than half of the number in the whole of August of 2021 have come already, and we're only on August the 7th, right? The numbers are going to, by all accounts, it looks like we're having a pretty good summer, Richard, and it looks like those numbers from last year are going to be thoroughly trounced. Why do you think the government, when time and again the British people vote for stronger border controls, they voted for Brexit in part to actually take back control and ensure that we could have border controls like any functioning democracy around the world, Richard? Why is it that the government of either party, Labour or Conservative, don't seem willing and able to get a grip of this problem? It's very simple. Even if someone like Priti Patel, who I think is... I think she genuinely wants to get on top of this problem. The truth is that she is trapped by a civil service that do not want to get on the problem. They've had this data. They probably even didn't show the Home Secretary. She's probably got no idea. So here's what's, what's going on. 
They've used our military assets, which is fine. Mm. They know exactly when the boats are leaving. They know exactly where they're leaving. They're giving the intelligence to the French authorities. But in this report, it actually says they're disappointed with the lack of cooperation from the, uh, the French authorities. I'm calling for three things, Darren. Firstly, we should be given this data monthly so we know where everybody's coming from. So we're not being lied to, we're not being misled. Secondly, the military should make sure they give every, every essentially, departure, make sure the French police know that immediately. And then thirdly, crucially, which you can do under the existing 1974 safety of life yeah. at sea regulations and laws, you have what I call pick up and take back. You pick them up, you know where they've gone from, you pick them up and you take them back. The French authorities, short term, will go nuts. What it will force is it will force it to be taken to international uh, laws and, and, and the courts and tribunal to rule on those, uh, those regulations. But at least everybody knows we're not going to be pushed around. And Richard, correct me if I'm wrong, but there have been numerous freedom of information requests made around this issue, trying to collect the sort of data that you're talking about right now, and they have been denied. Now, it strikes me that this is either a huge failure of, of government and, and the Home Office in particular, but you don't sound like you're laying the blame at Priti Patel's door. She's been Home Secretary for three years, and I ask you, Richard, if she cannot do it with the will, the determination, who can? Well, that's the thing, and who knows whether she will remain in place or whether she'll be replaced under whoever wins. I suspect it'll be Liz Truss. But um, you're reliant on being given the information. Personally, I think the Home Office is not fit for purpose, and sometimes something is so rotten, it is so incompetent, that actually it's not repairable. It's like a building. Sometimes it's too far gone. You're better to demolish it and rebuild and start again. In my view, the whole of the Border Force, large chunks of the Home Office are responsible for this. It's, it needs completely rebuilding, uh, essentially from the bottom up, by people who want to solve it, who want to get on top of it, want to sort it out on behalf of the British people. And it will save us billions of pounds every single year. Because, I mean, we've given 120 million quid to Rwanda, of course, for the, the policy that never got off the ground. Great deal for Rwanda. Oh, They've had the 120 million and no one's rocked up. Exactly. They must be like the cat that got the cream, Richard, I tell yeah. you that much. And it's just the beginning. But um, in a sense, that was a sort of a, a desperate last throw of the dice for the government. And they've been stymied by the European Convention on Human Rights, European Court of Human Rights, which we must, of course, leave. Replicated in British law, fine. But at least we don't have some foreign judge telling us what we can do with our own laws and our own borders. That's absolutely essential in order to do Brexit properly, which you and I uh, believe is the right thing. But what really troubles me about this is they've got all the data. Yeah. They know the information. They know where they're departing from. And actually, we're just not being told the truth. And is that because, ultimately, right, Richard, we have all been sold a pup here, right? We have been told that we're helping the world's needy, we're helping war-torn nations, people from war-torn nations. Your heart goes out to them, Richard. But, but, but the reality is, you've got more people coming from Turkey, Vietnam and Egypt. I mean, these are not war zones. Then you've got coming from Yemen and Syria. Syria represents just 5.7% in that six-week period of this report. So we've properly been sold apart, properly misled. Billions of pounds of our hard-earned cash uh, are basically going to give profits 
to uh, the vested interests, and there are huge vested interests here in the UK who are literally racketeering from all of this, the lawyers, the hotel operators, the outsourcers, mm. the charities making big surplus and big wages and all of that. The profits being made in the UK far exceed the profits being made by the vile, hideous people smugglers. And dare I say, a slave labour in some respects, Richard. And there is, and unfortunately, um, it is clear, these Albanian criminal gangs, I mean, they are brutal, they are violent, they own hundreds and hundreds of car washes. It turns out um, there's, a, there's all of a sudden appearing on high streets up and down the country, Turkish barbers. Very often they're not Turkish. They're Albanian sources of money laundering. This is what's going on in our country, up and down the country. I suspect you may well get many people say, yeah, it's a bit odd all of a sudden in the last couple of years. A couple of barbers have rocked up when actually there's no one really needing, you know, there's not that demand for it. And you think, hmm. You know, I always say, if your gut instinct tells you something, you know something's wrong, but you can't prove it, this report, this leaked report, shows that all of our gut instinct that something was wrong. Uh, you know, always trust your gut, in my view. And uh, we've, been, you know, that's been proven right. And it's it's incredibly serious. And I hope that I'm actually saying, indeed, you may well have listeners and viewers, Darren, who are conservative members who might be going to a hustings in the next few weeks. Please go, and on behalf of the British people, ask the two leadership candidates. Why is it you're allowing four in ten of these migrants to come from an EU applicant, a member of NATO? Why won't you immediately, the same week, say, thank you very much, but you don't qualify, so you're going back to Albania? Here's another stat for you, Darren. Last year, in the middle of the summer, um, the, uh, the Home Office, great signing ceremony with Albania, saying we're going yeah. to return all the 1,500 um, Albanian prisoners to Albania. Seven months later... How many? End of February. Have a guess. 500? Maybe. 300? Yeah. 100? It's lower. If I told you it's 24, would you be quite surprised and well, disappointed? Well, I would say that was ridiculous, yes. That's the truth. 24, seven Terrible. months later. This Home Office is utterly incompetent, utterly woeful. I hate to say it, but I almost think they're actually acting against the interests of the British people. They're not fit for purpose. The whole thing needs rebuilding from the ground up I think, by a new Home Secretary. And, Richard, if you, if you look at the fact that, as I say, people have voted time and again in various European elections, in general elections, for stronger border controls, do you have any confidence whatsoever that a Labour Party led by Sir Keir <laughs> Starmer would actually get a grip of this issue? Are you having me on? Are you having a laugh? <laughs> I, I heard you talk earlier about Keir Starmer. I mean, he can't even organise his own administration. That's true. His own declarations to Parliament let alone sort out this crisis. I mean, look, no chance. Nobody thinks that the Labour Party will stop this. The Tories, they talk a good game, but we hear that about so many things. Oh, we're going to grow the economy. Oh, we're going to cut taxes, and then they raise them. You know, I think the British people have had enough of waffle and spin and talk. We want action, and we want it now. On that point, then, were I, were it in my gift, and it's not, of course, it's Her Majesty the Queen's gift, to make you Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Richard, what would Reform UK do immediately? Would you be stripping immigration out of the Home Office, yes. making it its own yes. separate ministry? Take it straight out, create a new team by people who believe in it, uh, who understand the rules and regulations, and do this three-point uh, three plan. So, once a month, you put out the data where people are coming from, you make sure that uh, the, the military assets providing the locations of these departures, you give that to the French, because then information is power, 
and you have a pick-up-and-take-back policy. And the moment everybody knows that we're deadly, deadly serious about that, that we're going to take them back to Calais, to Dunkirk, then people will know, right, we mean serious business. There'll be a ruckus around the world for about a week. But then people know that the United Kingdom is not to be messed with. As, of course, they did with Australia, Richard, right? That's, That's how they got it sorted. But anyway, Richard Tice, thank you very much for bringing us that report. And uh, I dare say it's got a lot of people calling it, emailing in online, Richard. Go woke, go broke. The DIY chain Wix raised a few eyebrows by displaying this sign emblazoned for my radio listeners with the phrase, no LGB without the T, during an appearance at Brighton Pride, which returned following a two-year hiatus because, of course, the pandemic. Now, while many praised them for becoming a, a trans ally and a Stonewall champion, Non-trans members of the LGBT community accused Wicks of tarring all LGBT people with the same brush and dictating to them who they should align themselves with. Well, joining me to discuss this is the Reverend Calvin Robinson and the LGBTQ activist Peter Tatchell. Peter, I assume you welcomed the intervention of Wicks and you probably quite like this kind of, of entry into the debate. Well, of course, I think it's great that Wix does affirm its commitment to LGBT plus equality. Uh, it makes good business sense. Roughly about 10% of all employees in Britain are lesbian, gay, bisexual or transgender. And it's the interest of businesses that they retain them, that they make those employees feel welcome. We know from the research that's done that where workplaces are welcoming, those employees give extra effort. They are committed to their companies, their productivity is higher, their involvement in the company and their success contribution towards the success of the company is better. So it does make economic and business sense. And I think it's also, it is good that a big company does signal that it doesn't discriminate, that it welcomes everyone. And I think that's somebody, something that everyone should, should, should be applauding because discrimination is not compatible with British values. Calvin Robinson, when I think of Wix, when I think of home improvements, you know, I don't think, I don't go in there expecting to be discriminated against, right? I go in there seeking home improvement, not a lecture on the latest identity politics crusade. I know, it's sad. I think Peter's conflating many issues there. He's talking about being welcoming to the workforce, but what Wix is doing here is quite clearly advertising a campaign to their buyers, to the people that are just going in to buy a colour of paint, not necessarily looking for a lecture on societal norms or sexuality. And what I found interesting about the Wix campaign is that it's saying you cannot be in favour or supportive of LGB without being in favour or supportive of the T. And I think that's disingenuous too, because uh, that is discriminatory. If you are in favour of people of all sexualities uh, expressing that sexuality, that has absolutely nothing to do with someone wanting to change gender or, or, sex, or changing their sex. That is a debate that is very contested, very hot and heavy right now, has not been settled. And that's so different from the LGB argument of wanting equality in the workforce and in the rest of society.
Yeah, and then Peter, I've told you this before, you know, I'm very grateful to the activism that you've been part of in the past, where you have actually ensured that we have equality in the eyes of the law and wider society as far as gay men and women are concerned, and bisexual men and women. But I'm wondering, how does the, the issue of gender dysphoria of someone saying, look, I have gender dysphoria, it's a very debilitating thing to experience, my heart goes out to people that are genuinely experiencing that. But, Peter, I don't understand how the T is the same as the LGB, because one's sexual orientation and another is a gender dysphoria, a, a real issue that needs to be addressed. In fact, that's quite dangerous, because it's mixing up a mental health issue with a sexuality. Well, there is a difference between lesbian, gay and bisexual and trans. You know, one is about sexual orientation, the other is about gender identity. But both experience very similar, or have historically experienced very similar levels of discrimination and hate crime. Now, lesbian, gay and bisexual people have made huge advances. Um, trans people have somewhat been left behind. And I think we just, as a gesture of solidarity, we want to support our trans siblings. And again, going back to the business argument, there will be employees in Wix who are trans. There will be customers of Wix who are trans. Obviously, the business wants to make them all feel welcome. And that's just common sense. It's not saying that people should endorse it. It's just saying that they as a company endorse the principle of inclusion and equality for LGBT people. And that includes, of course, the T. You know, they're, they're, they're saying they don't want to exclude trans people. And I think that's a lovely, warm-hearted, generous, kind message. Now, I'm all in favor of loving others, supporting others, ending discrimination. I don't want to see discrimination against trans people. We know they do suffer prejudice and discrimination. I think it's fantastic that a company says, we don't support discrimination. But Peter, this, this trans movement is actually discriminatory towards women and women's rights. And this is why it's such a hot contested issue at the moment, because people are fighting to protect women's spaces, female-only spaces. And this is therefore a political statement by Wix. It's not inclusion, it's not diversity, it's a political statement that is gonna put a lot of people off. So I don't think it does make financial sense, actually. I think it's actually counterproductive to their business. It's a social lecture, it's social justice warrior, uh, and it's been taken up by the LGBT plus movement with in Wix, it's not actually by the corporate body. And Peter, before you answer that, I'm just wondering, the other banner that Wix had on, on their float there was the, the, they're looking to ban all forms of what they call conversion therapy. Now, this would actually stop someone like Calvin in his ministry from having a conversation with somebody about issues like gender identity and other forms of, of, of conversation, frankly, of prayer, of all of these other things. Do you support that as someone who believes passionately in freedom of speech? Well, the proposed legislation would not ban conversations. It would ban attempts to change someone's sexual orientation or their gender identity. And that we know, according to all the medical, psychiatric and counseling organizations, is very, very harmful. It's not only unethical, it's not only damaging, it doesn't work, but it does cause the victims immense psychological and emotional damage. We know that the rates of self-harm, depression, and anxiety among people who've been subjected to conversion therapy is astronomically high. I had a friend who went through conversion therapy some years ago. It made him suicidal. Now, he can't even have a functioning relationship. 
emotionally or sexually. It's caused him that much damage. And that's why all the professional bodies say it is unethical, dangerous, and wrong. I mean, I can't argue against your personal anecdote, which is probably why you used it. But what you said about all psychologists and all professional bodies saying that this is, is actually incorrect, because what we're seeing is a lot of companies are saying, if you ban conversion therapy under the current legislation, it will prevent many, many therapists and pastors and priests from having genuine conversations with people who are exploring themselves and their identity. Not about turning people away from, from becoming trans if that's what they want, but about having an engaging conversation and helping and supporting and encouraging people where necessary. People will be put off from that because there will be lawsuits. People will, therapists will no longer be able to have conversations that are open and honest, therefore they'll stop taking on board clients. And priests and vicars and deacons like myself will not be able to have conversations with people because we'll be under threat of prosecution from simply sitting down and talking with them. It's disingenuous to say that that's not the case. And I don't see what the point of it is because we, all we're hearing so far is we're, we're trying to stop um, persecution, we're trying to stop oppression. The LGBT plus community is not oppressed. In fact, as a straight man, I feel more oppressed than most of my gay friends at the moment because Pride Day became Pride Month. Pride Month is in, what, June? We're now in August. Pride is still going on in London as you walk about. Everywhere you go, it's overly affirming the LGBT community. Everywhere you go, it's no but longer oppressed. It's now, we've overreached. There was a fight for equality, which was important, I'll grant you that, but we've gone past that. There was no criteria to say, when we've met this, what do we do next? Peter Tatchell. Kelvin, you are factually wrong. Even today, one third of all LGBT plus people in this country have been victims of hate crime because of their sexuality or gender identity. That's one third, nearly a million people. Define I have friends of mine who have been beaten up just on the eve of the first of the London Pride uh, in, at the beginning of the month, at the beginning of July. Um, two friends of mine were beaten up by thugs as they left a gay club in South London. When it comes to our schools, nearly half of all LGBT plus kids in our schools have been victims of bullying, again, because of their sexuality or gender identity. So, so to say that it's all over and we've won this battle, no, yeah, no, we no. have made great... The battle for equality is not over. over. Because and, and to say that we're not... There is what still you do, Peter, is you very cleverly mix up stats. The vast majority of young people have been bullied in school for any reason, sex, sexuality, gender... Uh, race, whatever. Kids are bullied, and that's something we need to work on and stamp out, absolutely. But to conflate those facts and to use those facts to your argument to suggest that there is still a fight for equality is wrong. What kind of equality under the law do you not have as an LGBTQ++ person in this country? Well, for example, under the equality laws, religious organisations, including faith-run schools, hospitals, um, shelters for the homeless, are allowed in certain circumstances to discriminate against LGBT plus people. That is written into our equality laws. Why should so, faith So are you saying that people should not be more? able to adhere to their faith? Because my, in my faith, marriage is between one, one man and one woman united under God. And that is a discrimination under law that is protected because it's part of the faith. Are you saying we should undermine faith in this country and say that actually you're no longer allowed to practice Christianity, Islam, uh, this, Hinduism, this and Judaism? This is not about faith organizations. It's not about faith organizations. A church run a hostel for homeless people or a church-run nursing home is allowed... not way more a nursing home or a hostel discriminates against someone. Let me, finish, let me finish, please. In certain circumstances, they are allowed to refuse to care for an LGBT plus person. That is written into the law. It's not about faith organisations uh, practising their faith. 
It's about faith-run that's, that's schools. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but that is absolute nonsense. No care facility in this country is allowed to discriminate on someone due to their immutable characteristics. We have laws to protect against that. The Equalities Act is one of them. And it, written into it says there are qualified exemptions for religious organisations. OK, we'll, we'll disagree on that one. But I, I wonder, Peter, I want to ask you about these, this revelation by Guido Fawkes, the political blog, that found that HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, is spending over a million quid a year on taxpayers' money on diversity and inclusion officers. I'm wondering, Peter, a lot of my audience are saying, well, hang on a minute, Darren, we're in a generation-defining cost-of-living crisis, inflation like you wouldn't believe. Is this really the right use of taxpayer cash? What say you, Peter? Well, £1 million out of the HMRC, HMRC budget is very, very, very tiny. And again, the purpose is, is to overcome historic discriminations and disadvantages that certain groups face. And I think everybody who wants a kinder, gentler society should welcome that. We want to get to a situation where we won't need to spend this money, where everyone will feel welcome and included, where everyone will be treated equally, where disadvantage, historic disadvantage, will be overcome. That's the purpose of this kind of spending. And it is really very, very tiny, considering the large and massive HMRC budget. So, Calvin Robinson, are these diversity and inclusion managers that one million quid, is that a good use of taxpayer cash? Absolutely not. It's a complete waste of our money. Three million pounds been spent since 2019 on these people that are just splashing it around, painting rainbows here, there and everywhere. And it's not about making people feel more welcome at all. When your entire department is almost pressured into putting your, their pronouns on their email signatures, as just a, a lame example, the people that don't want to say what their pronouns are because they think they're obvious and everyone could see their pronouns by their name or by knowing them, then they feel left out. They don't feel welcome. So what we're doing is we're flipping the whole thing around. We're not making people more welcome. We're making one demographic more welcome than others. And that is not equality. That is not diversity. And it's not inclusion. Calvin, I just want to ask well, you about... Well, uh, anybody being forced to use pronouns. That, that is said, wrong. Pressured. That is I didn't wrong. say forced. Pressured. Don't twist my words. I said if you pressure a whole group of people to use pronouns, the ones that don't want to use them are going to feel like they're doing something wrong. And you know that to be the case. Well, I said I, I, don't, I don't support anyone being forced or pressured. It should be optional. It's but that's what these programs do. Unconscious bias training is another example that has been debunked. Does not work. A lot of this money from diversity and inclusion and equality officers goes on to giving people unconscious bias training, telling people that they're either overtly racist or covertly racist. These things that they cannot overcome. It's just the way that they're born if they happen to be white. These are harmful, divisive, toxic ideologies that should be nowhere near any public body. And the fact that we are paying, you and I are paying good money to make it happen, is disgusting. Peter Tatchell, final brief word. In, in most cases. I, I, I would oppose it. I don't think it does happen in most cases. But there, I'm sure there are some examples. And, you know, we do have to uh, create a culture of equality and inclusion in a way that doesn't exclude people or make people feel bad about themselves. This is not about revenge. It's not about making people feel guilty. It's about making people feel embracing and inclusive of others so that we can all live together in a harmonious kind and gentle society. OK, we'll have to leave it there, folks, and agree to disagree. That was the Reverend Calvin Robinson and the LGBTQ activist Peter Tatchell. I thank both of them for their contribution. Now, folks, there's plenty more to come this afternoon on Real Britain. After the break, I'll continue that discussion with the political commentator Reem Ibrahim. But what do you think at home? Are corporations becoming too woke? Let's have a little look at the weather before we get back.
Looking ahead to this evening's weather, and the UK will be mostly dry, although cloudiest in the north, with light rain for western Scotland. Here are the details. A fine end to the day across southwest England with plenty of late evening sunshine. It will remain dry throughout this evening and tonight, with temperatures only slowly falling away. Across southeast England, clear skies will persist this evening, leaving a fine and dry night, although warm, with plenty of sunshine to end the weekend. A dry and fine evening across South Wales, although there may be some patchy low cloud mist and fog tonight, particularly in the north. There'll be plenty of sunshine around to end the weekend across the Midlands. Tonight, a combination of clear spells and light winds brings a risk of some patchy mist and fog forming. Patchy cloud will persist across much of northeast England this evening, though there will be some late evening sunny spells too, remaining warm this evening and overnight with temperatures only slowly falling away. A mostly dry end to the weekend for southern Scotland with some sunny spells around. However, there may be the odd spot of light rain and drizzle over high ground. Any cloud across Northern Ireland will continue to break up this evening to allow for sunny spells. Clear spells tonight could lead to some patchy rural mist and fog forming, though. A largely dry night, though warm, especially in the east. A chance of some mist and fog in the west. That's how the weather is shaping up overnight into tomorrow morning. Welcome back to Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes. Now, joining me live in the studio is the political commentator, Reem Ibrahim. Reem, you listened to that debate between Calvin Robinson and Peter Tatchell. I wonder, do you think, as someone that believes in market competition and the, the freedom and right of individuals to express themselves however they want, are corporations trying to ram values down our throats? Well, my first point is that actually I think private companies are able to do whatever it is that they wish to do. Um, the reason why I find Wix slightly funny is because I think that most of their customers tend to be blue-collar workers, so to think that they're sort of shopping at a place that is, that is sort of pushing these ideas I think is quite funny. Um, yeah, my view is that private companies are always free to be able to say whatever it is that they want to do. Um, the, the flip side of that is actually they're pushing for legislation and change. They're pushing for the ban on conversion therapy. And I think that's a slightly different issue. They're not just a private company advocating for LGBTQ rights. They are advocating for changing legislation. And that's where the issue really lies. And absolutely, because, I mean, I don't know what your view is, but my view is that we must not legislate to ban conversations between a therapist, a healthcare professional, and potentially a child who is saying they're experiencing gender dysphoria and could lead on a, a medical pathway, for example. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more with you, Darren. I think that the, the core of the issue is here that we are trying to implement a restriction on freedom of speech. We're telling doctors and nurses that they can't have that simple conversation with children. I think when we're talking about medical change, this is where it's really, really quite important. I mean, we saw with the closure of the Tavistock Centre recently, the absolutely appalling things that we're hearing from those doctors that felt 
too afraid to tell the children and tell the parents of the children that actually medical transition, permanent medical transition, mm -hmm. is actually not the right way forward for them. And now we're seeing more and more people detransitioning. I think it really is a lack of sort of empathy to, for these children. To, they, they were too afraid to be, uh, and were afraid to be called transphobic. I yes, think this exactly. is a real huge restriction on freedom of speech. And then, so my viewers will uh, broadly, I think, agree with you. That will be the consensus. And they'll be saying, well, hang on a minute. If I want to go into Wix and buy some bits and bobs for home improvement, you know, I don't need a lecture on transgender identity, right? It, it, just leave the politics out of it. Um, I, do, I do agree with you on that point, but I also do think that we vote with our dollar as consumers. Well, there if we you are. Don't, if you don't want to go to Wix and you don't want an, a lecture on transitioning and, and LGBTQ rights, go go, some, go to B&Q. <laughs> you know, as a yeah. consumer, you can choose and you can make those decisions. Wix is a private company. They have the freedom to do that. Remy Abraham there, the political commentator, I wonder how many people will be taking up that advice. Now, folks, moving on. Several parts of England have been hit with a hosepipe ban after the driest July for 87 years. People living in Kent, Sussex, Hampshire and the Isle of Wight are all prohibited from using hosepipes to water their gardens, clean their cars and fill paddling pools. However, the ban has been questioned by Water UK, who say that hosepipe bans normally only reduces water usage by around 10%. Well, joining me to discuss these measures is the Conservative MP for Walkingham, Sir John Redwood. John Redwood, I thank you very much for your time. Do you welcome this hosepipe ban? Do you think it's the right measure to, to conserve water at this time? No, I do not welcome bans. I want them to put in enough capacity so they can meet the legitimate demands of their consumers. But if they judge that we won't get through uh, this summer and next winter without a hosepipe ban, they should get on with it immediately to make sure we don't run out. They have to make that decision. They know the normal patterns of demand and they know how much water they've got left. I've been one of those MPs urging them for several years to put in more capacity. We've been building all these houses and welcoming hundreds of thousands of new people into the southeast and we haven't been putting in the extra capacity you obviously need if you welcome a lot more people into a lot of no new homes. John Redwood, if we accept that climate change and the world getting hotter and all the rest of it, we, we accept that this summer will not be a unique one-off test subject. In that case, John Redwood, do we have to learn to live with this? And that means we also have to ensure that the water supply diminished as it is right now, is, is kept constant. How do we actually manage the effects of climate change? Well, you put in capacity. I mean, if, if you really think it's going to get hotter and we're going to have less rain, and we, um, we're obviously having a period without a lot of rain at the moment. We, we had a very big one in 1976 when we did run out of water and had to put in standpipes. Uh, in order to stop that kind of thing, the answer is terribly easy. You put in more capacity. And the great news is that there's loads of water all around the globe. Uh, the globe is more water than anything else with all the oceans. And some of that water is picked up, forms clouds, and is dropped as rain. We've got to collect more of it, clean more of it, make sure it is available for supply. But you can't destroy water. It goes through a water cycle. It's the ultimate renewable it just requires the regulators and the industry to get their act together to have enough of it on standby for when you don't have much rain. In the interim, then, whilst the uh, water companies get on with doing that, hopefully, we'd all, I think, agree with that uh, sentiment, what do you actually think about the, the encouragement by some water companies to encourage their, their customers 
to snitch on those who defy the ban? Well, they will have their own views of what they should say to their customers. I'm not here to give them advice on how to manage their customer accounts or what messages to send out. I do want the water companies to concentrate on doing their jobs, which is to have enough clean water available and to stop tipping sewage into our rivers, two very essential things that you would have thought the regulator by now would be on top of. Uh, and when it comes to making those crucial judgments about whether we need to rein in our water consumption already and not use hoses, uh, we need some factual information from them about what their stocks are like and what they think is going to happen next. And it would be a good idea, if they really are worried, to put the hosepipes bands on as quickly as possible. So, John, you won't be giving the Jaguar a hose down anytime soon then, I assume? Ah, I am no, not in an area which has banned hosepipes ah. yet, and I will make my own judgment about what is appropriate to do, but I don't waste water. It is, after all, all metered. Yes, absolutely. I'm wondering then, is this sort of thing going to become more common? Because the, the water companies don't seem to be acting fast enough. As you say, you're calling for, for action there, robust action to ensure the, the supply of water and to clean this, the stuff and get it out there a lot faster than they are right now. Do you see this becoming more regular, that the hosepipe bans just become something that we experience in this country and get used to? Well, they only need to. I mean, we, we, we're told that Thames Water can't make available its desalination plant at the moment. Well, why not? We've got a dry patch in this summer. Surely that's what they put in all that capital investment to a desalination plant uh, in order to protect them against it. And, and London is one of the very uh, drought-ridden parts of the country with a very big population. It'd be really good if they could just turn on their desalination plant. Uh, and I'm very happy to support in a suitable location in the southeast a new reservoir. We've been talking about that for years, but still no sign of it. Well, John Redwood MP, always the home of common sense. I thank you very much for your contribution there. Now, if you watch this show, you'll know I've got a thing, a bee in my bonnet for government failure. And could this be one of them? Just a week after launch and Parliament has shut down its TikTok account after numerous MPs said, hang on a minute, I've got concerns around data security. The account went live on the 27th of July with the promise of offering TikTok users behind-the-scenes content of what goes on in Parliament. But it's since been locked and had its content deleted after several senior Tory MPs, including Tom Tugendhat, leadership contender at one point, wrote to the speakers of both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, urging them to take their account down. Well, joining me to discuss this is the former senior military intelligence officer, Philip Ingram. Philip, I thank you very much for your time. Do you agree that a parliamentary TikTok account poses a risk to our national security? A massive risk. You know, TikTok um, has got a, a huge number of concerns around it. I'll never have it on any of my devices unless it's a burner device that's used just for apps that um, I think are suspicious. Um, it, you, it has been accused of and it's been proven that it uh, carries out excessive data collection operations on data that it doesn't need. And this is the trouble with viral apps that are out there, that uh, people don't know what's going on in the background of them. And this and TikTok itself um, through the company that developed it, ByteDance, has got very close links to the Chinese government. Philip Ingram, I wonder then, 
Is it just because of the fact that, that behind the scenes, you know, based in Beijing and all of these other things, do we have question marks around TikTok as a platform because of its links to China and the Chinese Communist Party? Or is it that this, this app is unethical in its harvesting of our data? Well, I think both come into it. Um, I think it's unethical, unethical in the amount of data that it's harvesting. It's uh, not policing the practices of what it's encouraging people to do uh, to get their little videos up on TikTok. Uh, a lot of those videos, uh, and we look at the number of videos that are coming out of you know, the, the conflict in Ukraine, for example, you know, TikTok can geo-reference them. It can um, look at uh, more data on the devices that are being used to upload the videos and everything else. What's happening to that data? Is it being passed to one side or to the other side? And all of that happens with our, our personal data as well. And that is put into what's called big data, and it can be then used to try and manipulate the messages that we're seeing on other social media platforms and try and influence the way we think. This is something that came out in the wider Cambridge Analytics scandal uh, linked to Facebook, but TikTok is at the centre of it. And we should be really concerned about every app that we have on all of our devices because we need to know how it's handling our data. And the, the senior Tory MP, Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, he's uh, in The Telegraph saying, and I quote, others need to think twice about opening accounts with TikTok, they're harvesters for the Chinese government. I mean, when you read statements like that, you think, my word, you know, this app is enormously popular, enormously successful. Yeah. I've got Reem yeah. Ibrahim here in the studio who uses it to our heart's content, right? Should we actually be saying, hang on a minute, we need a nationwide ban on this platform? The, the, the difficulty is uh, we live in a, a nation where you know, free speech is at the core of what we do. So we can't ban free speech, but we have to let people know the, the threats that are out there. So your colleague who's got the TikTok, if she's happy that every single one of her contacts, every single draft text that she produces, potentially every email that she's got, potentially every picture that she's got on her device goes into a Chinese government intelligence database and can be used against her or against her um, contacts, if she's happy with that, provided she knows it, then that's fine. It's, it's her choice to use it. But people need to realise and wake up to the threat. It is very real. Um, and if I was to devise a perfect intelligence gathering tool as a former senior intelligence officer where I wanted to get stuff easily, I'd devise something that is viral, that is popular for people to use, that they're going to put stuff on, but I can harvest everything else that's going on behind it. That's what TikTok does. Philip, how much do you agree with me then that actually we, we, we were sleepwalking to this idea that China was joining the international order, that it would become a liberal mm -hmm. democracy thanks to the marketization of its, of basically it's adopting capitalism to a certain extent. And actually this idea that it would, it would become a, a, a good actor, a fair actor on the international stage. Well, COVID blew that theory out of the water completely, didn't it, when it refused to actually share data on this pandemic with nations like our own. How much do you reckon that the West is sleepwalking into disaster with the Chinese Communist Party ultimately reaping the spoils of our stupidity? 
Oh, completely. You know, China uh, it thinks and plans and acts 25 years ahead. So whenever it's doing anything, it takes little steps, little bites. It moves very slowly doing things to a much longer term plan that we don't notice in our rushing around every day where the most important thing politically is what tomorrow morning's headline is going to be or what the next tweet is going to be in, in half an hour's time. Um, whereas China doesn't care about that. It ignores the headlines. It ignores everything else. And it, it moves slowly, slowly, slowly. And if we look at where it's got pervasive throughout the whole of society, what it's doing in Southeast Asia, in growing new land masses that it's claiming, in the threats that it's putting out to Taiwan, in the, the military capabilities building, is building more ships every year than the Royal Navy's got in its fleet today. Um, we're, we're missing all of that. So yes, we are sleepwalking into a, a potential huge issue in the future. Philip Ingram, I guess the, the, the most depressing question I can think of that I must end with then would be, as a senior military intelligence, a former senior military intelligence officer, do you reckon we all better start learning our Mandarin? Do you reckon actually, you know, we're, we're <laughs> basically, that's it, we might as well accept that President Xi is going to be our head of state and not Her Majesty the Queen? I don't think we're anywhere near that stage. I think you know, China's got uh, a number of weaknesses, and that's the, that's the reason why China's sitting on, its, on the fence and not supporting Russia openly. Um, economics drives everything. So China doesn't want to go to war, doesn't want to have conflict with people. It wants to take over the world economically, and it already owns most of Africa, a big chunk of Southeast Asia, is developing into uh, Europe, owns all the mines in Australia. It's working very slowly, uh, but we have to wake up and recognise the threat, and people have to realise that a lot of stuff that's out there that they think is convenient, they think is nice, they think is everything else, is actually um, helping the threat actors develop and realise this and not just forget about it. Okay, well, Philip Ingram there, I thank you very much for your expertise on that issue. Joining me live in the studio is TikTok star herself, political commentator Reem Ibrahim. Hello. Reem, you heard the question that Philip Ingram said there. He put that directly to you. He said, if you're happy for your data to be harvested, potentially your pictures on your phone being harvested by a company that will have links to the Chinese state, what say you? Look, I think that TikTok is not just a dancing app. It's not just an app that we use to create funny videos. A lot of our data security is at risk on across different apps that we use. I think that there's, you know, that there's been huge data risks with things like Snapchat, things like Instagram and Twitter. So a lot of our data is already out there. I actually think that our data is at risk regardless of whether we use TikTok or not. I completely agree with Philip. I think that TikTok is a particular issue, um, primarily because of obviously its links with the CCP as well. Um, but again, I think that government will always try and access our data across all the apps that we use. And TikTok is a particularly effective app when it comes to its algorithm. I mean, um, loads of uh, the front bench MPs also use TikTok in order to sort of campaign, show what they do as a member of parliament. So I think that some of them are maybe a little bit hypocritical asking for the parliamentary TikTok to go as well. I mean, Nadine Dorries herself follows me on TikTok. Uh -huh. so. <laughs> well, do you think the solution, speaking of Nadine Dorries, and just briefly, if you would, do you think the solution here is an online safety bill act that actually ensures that the likes of Archie Battersby apparently took part 
it, he could well have taken part in one of those viral trends that has ultimately led him to hurt himself and, and ultimately end in his death. Do we need an online safety bill to actually protect kids from these viral trends on TikTok? No, absolutely not. I mean, it's really, really quite sad what a lot of people will try and do online. I think it's up to the parents' responsibilities to, to protect their children. And the online safety bill is absolutely awful. I really hope that the government do end up scrapping it after we... We'll see what happens after the leadership election. It's, a, it's an indictment on free speech. You want to be careful, cos Nadine Dorries will be unfollowing you on TikTok if you're not careful. <laughs> Now, folks, it's time for Grime Watch, a chance to look at what you at home have been saying about the biggest stories of the week. In light of the findings that Sakia Starmer had breached MPs' code of conduct, I said this on social media. Sakia Starmer QC has been found to have breached the MPs' code of conduct by failing to register on time eight interests. Eight! Once you can be forgiven, twice maybe, but eight interests. Were this Boris Johnson, would never hear the end of it. It would be headline news. And I stand by that, it won't surprise you to learn. And a lot of you have been responding to it, and Marie has this to say. For a swanky lawyer, he sure does appear to have issues with completing paperwork. And that's it, Marie. I tell you what, if it was Boris Johnson, if the shoe was on the other foot, it would be front page of The Guardian. Sue says... Mr. Forensic doesn't seem very forensic on his paperwork, does he? Even more double standards stacked in favour of the Liber Party. Oh, doesn't hold back there, Sue. But Abu disagrees. Sir Keir Starmer was found not to have deliberately withheld this information, unlike Boris Johnson, who didn't know he was paying for his flat renovation until it was found to be Tory donors. And Richard goes on to poke fun at Beergate, Sir Keir Starmer must think that his free exemption from Durham covers Westminster as well. Well, Lloyd has this to offer. On the scale of things, this does not even register on the scale compared to the Tories. Everything is relative. If we can forgive the Tories for their indiscretions, then we can completely ignore this. Well, I wonder if the electorate will agree with Lloyd there, but Matthew finally says, Mr Squeaky Clean is not so clean after all. I think the only uh, squeakiness with Sir Keir Starmer is the fact that he's so robotic. He needs a bit of oil, doesn't he? But I thank you all for your thoughts, much more important than mine. Now, the number of deaths in Scotland caused by alcohol is at its highest level since 2008. The statistics were particularly worrying for Scots living in certain areas as deaths attributed to alcohol were over five times as likely in the most deprived settings. Not only that, alcohol-related hospital stays were nearly eight times higher. So is minimum unit alcohol pricing actually working? Favourite pro uh, project of the pet project of the SNP. Well, joining me to discuss this is the Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Christopher Snowden. Christopher, look, for those of us who don't know, what actually is minimum unit pricing and when was it introduced in Scotland? Has it had enough time to actually feed through and have an effect? Minimum pricing came in in um, May 2018. Uh, it's just a, it sets a floor price on a unit of alcohol. Units of alcohol is, for example, one shot of whiskey or half a pint of beer. So you cannot, in Scotland, sell alcohol at less than 50p per unit. This has led to a, a significant price rises, particularly for things like cider. But for most alcohol sold in off-licenses and supermarkets, the price has gone up in the last four years. So yes, it's had plenty of time to show its merits. There was a lot of modelling saying it was going to reduce crime, it was going to reduce unemployment, reduce alcohol-related hospital admissions and deaths. 
Um, so far, all we've seen is a relatively modest drop in alcohol consumption, but not amongst the heaviest drinkers. A study came out a few weeks ago showing that the heaviest drinkers are actually drinking more. We've had studies out showing that it's had no effect on crime, that it's had no effect on A&E attendances. And as you say there, we've seen alcohol-related deaths go up for the last two years. Most of that probably down to, to COVID and uh, to the lockdowns of stress and boredom and so on, anxiety associated with the pandemic. We've seen a similar phenomenon in England, but we don't really need to look at that data to show that minimum pricing hasn't worked. We've got plenty of evaluations um, in other areas. Minimum pricing then, how much more expensive did it make alcohol for those that aren't in Scotland? For those who aren't in Scotland, it had no effect. I mean, that's why we can use even as a control group. But no, they the haven't experienced it. It, it depends on the on what you were drinking, really. So if you look at like white cider, very cheap industrial white cider, uh, essentially that's been taken off the market pretty much in Scotland. There's really no point buying it. It went up by you know several pounds per bottle. Um, so what it really meant, it was quite, quite interesting from an economic point of view, because um, people who were heavy dependent drinkers were drinking things like white cider just because they were cheap. It wasn't because they particularly liked the flavor of it or anything. So you've seen a huge decline in cider sales. You've seen a big increase in fortified wine sales, including Buckfast, which has a bit of a reputation in Scotland as being you know, associated with alcohol uh, disorder. Um, but what it's meant is that you know, if you're if you were previously drinking the stuff that was below 50p a unit, you now can um, base your preferences on things like how quickly is this going to get me drunk, in which case you might switch to spirits, or you know, I, I, do I like the flavour, in which case you might go to something like fortified wine, or who knows, brandy or, or whatever. But the, the overall effect, although you've seen declines in some areas and rises in other areas, you, you have seen this a decline of about 5% in overall alcohol consumption, which a lot of people would assume would lead to a reduction in alcohol-related deaths and other problems associated with alcohol, but it hasn't. All we've done is actually raise the price of alcohol and, and, and impact disproportionately the least well-off. Because, Chris, most of us aren't, and I dare say this is the case in Scotland as well, most people aren't problem drinkers. So is it really right to harm everyone in their pockets? just to combat this issue when it isn't even combating that issue, Chris, evidently. Well, especially when it's not actually combating the issue. Obviously, if policy isn't working, then it, you know, it doesn't make sense to bring it in at all. But uh, I did some research on this <clears throat> a few months ago and estimated that the policy has cost drinkers £270 million in Scotland already. So wow. it's having a real effect on the cost of, uh, of living. And really what's happened is what I think most people without any kind of academic qualifications could probably work out. There was a study came out last week showing people are spending less money on food in Scotland. Now you might think that's quite a good thing because Scotland has an obesity problem, same as uh, most of the Western world. But they're not, uh, they're not consuming less junk food. In fact, they're, in, they're consuming more on average, more crisps and snacks and less fruit and veg. So it's having all sorts of uh, bad unintended consequences. And as another study in June pointed out, the people who are heavy or dependent drinkers, they're still drinking just as much. Some of them are drinking more. They're going to the pub less, some of them, which is something I, I thought would probably happen. Uh, they're spending less in other areas, including food and perhaps heating. Um, and some of them, in, in some cases, are resorting to, to food banks. But the one thing they're not doing is cutting down their alcohol consumption. 
Yeah, well, there we are. And that answers the question, doesn't it? If the policy ain't working, get rid of it. That was the head of Lifestyle Economics there, Christopher Snowden. I thank you for your time. Now, folks, you have been watching Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes. I thank you very much for your company. This show's on every Saturday and Sunday at 2 o'clock, and we always value your opinion more than mine. But for now, folks, I'm going to leave you with the weather. Hopefully... It's going to be nice all weekend and we won't have any more of those pesky hosepipe bands, though, as well, that John Redwood addressed earlier on the show. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment. I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.